Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. To all who shall see these presents, greetings. On behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast. Our series designed to connect the world to the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Nate Janikin, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We will also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who could not join us today. So we'd ask you keep your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. At the conclusion of our discussion, we'll have a question and answer session. So if you have a question, just type it in the group chat and I'll go through them in the order received. In July 1849, Austrian forces loaded unmanned balloons with 24 to 30 pound bombs onto balloons equipped with a timed fuse. They released nearly 200 balloons to have them drop their ordnance on Venice. Only a single bomb is recorded to have hit the city due to a change in winds after launch, but this is said to be the first recorded unmanned aerial vehicle uh, used for attack. Since then, since systems have gotten smaller and more sophisticated. With drones available commercially, the use of SUAS has unintended exploded. We've now been watching the war in Ukraine for the last two years through the eyes of FPV drones, many commercial off-the-shelf systems, and propaganda from all sides showing unit training. The U.S. Air Force partnered with the Drone Racing League, the premier league for professional drone racing in 2022, as a recruiting effort. Recently, we've seen the use of drones in the Red Sea in combination with coastal defense missiles as well. With that, I'd like to introduce our guest, Mr. Bill Edwards. He's retired from the Army in 2017 as a colonel and then led Thornton Tomasetti's Securities Consulting Group as a principal from 2017 to 2022, and recently joined Building Intelligence as president of the Federal and Public Safety Business Group. He has 35 years of experience in operational and technical security, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, surveillance, and counter-surveillance. This started with his time in the uniform, serving as a base commander in Al-Ambar, Dukha, and Basra provinces. He recently published a book titled Inside Abu Ghraib, Memoirs of Two U.S. Military Intelligence Officers, along with 80 other articles on security-related topics. Mr. Edwards teaches leadership, strategic communications, and negotiations at the Air Force War College, and he holds a slew of business certifications, but also he's a licensed FAA Part 107 drone operator and has developed SUAS training courses, which will be linked in the show notes. Sir, welcome back to the Brutecast. It's uh, been some time since you were last a guest. Uh, you spoke with Ian uh, back in September of 2022. And uh, for those who haven't heard it, we published it on our feeds on uh, October 1st of that year. Uh, so with that, I'd like to uh, turn the floor over to you for opening comments and then just let me know when you want me to kick off the slideshow. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot for the intro and great to be back on the show. I see Ian's, Ian's logged in. Great to see him and also uh, uh, Preston McLaughlin, a good friend of mine. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll, we'll do a, I'll do a, I'll try to do a good job to update um, everyone here and others that are going to watch this later on where uh, the small UAS uh, drone capability has gone in conflict, but also sort of tie in some ideas on why it's important for security professionals in private sector. And even if you think about um, garrison base operations and critical infrastructure in the country, um, how this can how this technology can impact those areas as well is is super important to understand. So I'm ready. If you wanna you wanna go ahead, let's um, let's put the slides up, and I'll go through these. Um, uh, I'll go through these one by one. But uh, this the title of this presentation is the evolution of commercial drones in conflict and security and why you should care. 
Uh, and, and that's become uh, a, a pretty important title uh, because we're seeing a lot uh, of interest now. And what, what I think, and, and all of you on this call will understand this, that this is a revolution in military affairs by far. I, I wrote about it several years ago. I said it was coming. Um, and I think we've seen, I've seen the reality of it now. So let, let's go to the next slide. Um, I like to start uh, this presentation, especially with a, an audience uh, from DOD and, and, and possibly even private sector. But what, what is this picture actually telling us? Well, this is, this, this harkens back to actually World War II, where uh, soldiers were riding on the outside of vehicles because it was just simply too dangerous to ride on the inside of vehicles. Um, and so you'll see here Russian soldiers actually on the top of their, uh, probably a BMP. And this is actually, and you can, if you look at this picture closely, you'll see the reticle of the FPV drone. It's right in the center of the picture. And this is the last thing that soldier probably saw uh, before this uh, precision strike took place. So think about that for a minute as we go through this presentation and why it's so important we should care about how this technology is changing uh, modern tactical uh, conflict. Because again, this, this technology has come from the strategic operational level and is now uh, solidified itself in the tactical fight, trench warfare in this case uh, in Ukraine. Um, but this, this image right here uh, always interests me and I'm glad uh, I'm able to share it with you, but it's also very frightening. Next slide, please. Okay, I'm just going to go through uh, some use cases quickly. This is a combination of of uh, military action, but also things that are happening in private sector in the United States that might interest you. But the the evolution, maturity, the innovation, the creativity of the small UAS platform is here to stay, and it's only gonna it's only gonna grow in maturity. Uh, if you when we start really getting into AI, autonomous flight, and we start talking about swarms or command and controlled uh, swarms, which we can get into a little bit of, of that discussion later on what the difference between a flock is, a flock of drones or mass or a, a, a swarm of drones. But in this case, I also like that picture on the left. It shows a soldier uh, walking into battle uh, in the Ukraine-Russian conflict. And what is he carrying? He's carrying his, his uh, category or group two drone uh, with him into the fight. Some of these other images, you'll see I showed you the Russian soldier before. But some of these others are um, come from the um, Israeli-Hamas conflict. And then, of course, on the bottom three, these are all events that took place in the United States in the last six months, where um, a man in New Jersey was dropping chemicals into swimming pools to show capability. Uh, a person in New Hampshire was dropping eggs and feces on homeless people, again, showing capability. And then the far right or bottom right is actually the Baltimore Ravens football game where there were reported a drone over the game and then the game was stopped, but it was actually multiple drones. It did not hit the news. We found out later. And so um, this was significant event, obviously, for the NFL and, and for uh, the players and fans, of course, that were attending this game. So just showing you capability from the use cases here in conflict the number one use case that has grown in maturity is first person view which is precision strike capability at the tactical level um i had uh, recently this week viewed a video where a russian soldier who was tracked by an fpv drone uh to the point of precision strike 
that is a very scary event when a small UAS platform, a group one or two platform is able to to stalk basically a soldier on foot on the ground and then and then uh, strike that soldier with that uh, ordinance. That is the level of uh, tactical sophistication we are at now with this small UAS platform. Next slide, please. This I wanted to highlight. Uh, I found this last week, but anyone that is a veteran of the Iraq-Afghanistan conflicts like myself, you understand that the EFP IED is very dangerous. These, this is an image of an EFP on a small drone. So think about that for a minute, how the creativity and the innovation of these, of these uh, platforms are being used to further conflict, to, to bring uh, further damage on the battlefield. And of course, everyone knows how dangerous how dangerous these IEDs are. Uh, and so I think a significant thing to keep in mind, and all I'm doing here is presenting you with, with things that are happening in these conflicts um, as they mature and as time goes by. And, and so why does that matter? Because we as former DOD members or DOD members really need to think about this in our tactical formations. What are we doing? What are we doing to protect our formations from this type of threat? So we keep that in mind. I obviously don't have all those answers. I'm sure someone's looking at it, but again, we've got to continue to educate and we've got to think about this as a technique, tactic and procedure that's here to stay. Next slide. This is a great picture because I wanted you, I want you to really focus in on the numbers at the, at the bottom of this image. This is obviously an image of Russian soldiers in FPV or first person view uh, flying mode, but look at the numbers. Russia is producing 300,000 FPV drones monthly and training 5,200 op operators. What does that say about this conflict? Now, let's, I, I will tell you, the Russians are late to the game on this. The Ukrainians were way ahead. Where the Russians were leading in this conflict was in EW, electronic warfare. But now they have really gotten themselves into the small UAS drone uh, capability. This is a significant number. Ukraine reported right before the holidays they were losing 10,000 drones in this in these categories a month. And we also know that there are over 6,000 platforms that have been used in the conflict. At, and really what I like to say, it's, it's a laboratory with multiple experiments going on, but that's a lot of drones in the air um, that are taking, taking this conflict to a different level. Next slide, please. Okay, I just want to review quickly. Uh, you've heard me mention categories of drones. This is a pretty standard NATO uh, chart. But drones are categorized into five categories. The drones that I focus on in these presentations are, are we call them categories or groups, categories one, two, and sometimes three. We're going to see some of that in the uh, Israeli-Hamas conflict. But really, everyone on this call is familiar with categories four and five. Those are the big drones we've all been using for decades. But really where warfare has changed, and this is something to really take note of, is in this group or categories one and two. And then, of course, three, you'd be familiar. Um, a shadow might be a three. A raven might be a, a three. Um, so those are the platforms we're also uh, used to. But really where we're starting to see this take shape is categories one and two with products like DJI, the uh, Mavic 3. Uh, some of those platforms are, are used quite a bit. Next slide. Just a recap on sensors, functions, and capabilities. This, this commercially available at uh, small UAS platforms are very capable, they're very mature, and they're getting better. Um, what was interesting is if you look at the sensors, functions, and capabilities of these, of these drones that you can simply buy off your, 
of your favorite um, commercial website. These are really um, high quality products. In fact, I um, I had the experience recently in my in my neighborhood where I uh, was walking my dog one afternoon, and there was a young a young uh, guy. He was flying his FPV drone in the park. He was 13 years old. And he was air braking that drone. He was flying it probably 50, 60 kilometers around an hour in, in a circle. He was an expert and he was 13 years old. He actually had his AirPods in, he was listening to music and he was just enjoying himself. So I had a conversation with him to find out, you know, how he learned how to do that. He trained himself. He was uh, certified as a pilot. He did everything right, but the skill level was amazing to me at his age. And so think about that. And he was in FPV mode. So um, that was very fascinating to me. But if you look at this, all of these capabilities are available with a click of the mouse. And then, of course, um, most recently, Skydio, which is a U.S. product. By the way, um, I should mention DJI is a Chinese company, and they they command 80% of this market, which is a problem. And, uh, and you've probably seen a lot of the um, uh, publications come out recently from CISA and others. Uh, telling telling our government agencies they cannot purchase uh, Chinese-made drones anymore for obvious reasons. And so those those publications are out. One just came out 17 January. You can find it. It's from CISA, but it's a warning about um, these, these platforms uh, coming from China. But Skydio, which is a, com a competitor, U.S.-made, they just came out with a platform called X10. You might want to look that up, but it is the true competitor to DJI's M30, the Mic 30. Uh, Capability-wise, sensor packages, payloads, all of those things. So we're starting to see the U.S. Mar uh, drone market really, uh, I think, pick up. Um, Skydio is probably leading the way. Um, so someone, you, some some companies you might want to just take interest in. Next slide. Okay, what I want to do now is just give you some images of what I've been tracking with um, the Israeli-Hamas um, conflict. Um, what you're seeing here is really the initial October 7th um, event. These are Hamas uh, drones. These are categories one through three drones. Um, you'll see on the upper right, that's a category three drone. They're just, uh, they call them loitering munitions, but they're really fire and forget. Um, and we can talk, if you have questions about loitering munitions, just put them into the chat. We can get into that. Um, but these are, this is how this conflict started. It started with rockets that went overhead to try to consume the Iron Dome's attention. And then the drones and the uh, ultra flights or the light flights flew in under the radar, uh, uh, literally, in order to uh, take uh, take this uh, attack to the next level. We've seen this before with uh, the Houthis and Saudi Arabia, where they fired a lot of rockets in 2018, I believe, or 2019 at a Saudi oil field. And then they flew the drones in for precision strike under the radar again. So that's a technique uh, that's being used that we should uh, capture and understand. Next slide. Again, more images here of, of some of these drones out of the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Most of these here are category or group three that you're seeing. The bottom right image is actually an Israeli uh, tower on the border that was targeted by a category one drone. So they were dropping small grenades and munitions into these uh, communications towers and also weapons uh, delivery towers. So these were these were towers that had um, machine guns, automatic weapons. They also had communications packages. That's how uh, Hamas went after um, the Israeli uh, wall. There, I liken it if you're a history buff to the Maginot Line. Um, you know, simply the Germans went around the Maginot Line. The French thought they had this great fortification. Obviously, it didn't work. This was in the early stages of World War II. I mean, I think the techniques here were were pretty similar. 
you know, they they went after uh, a perimeter that really wasn't manned. It was it was um, being surveilled, and so uh, you know, again, something to say about uh, walls or towers that don't have people in them. Next slide, please. I just want to hi quickly highlight here um, because I was very interested in what's happening in Gaza from the tunnel aspect. And uh, so I did some research and looked into some capabilities, but there are drone systems that are being used that are going into these tunnel networks to really um, do that that um, that uh, first level of patrolling or surveillance into these tunnels before putting humans into them. And so some of the uh, um, pictures you see here are images of those types of drones. The one on the right is actually um, a U.S. company, I believe, called uh, Shield AI, um, and that's their platform called Nova2. Um, I believe the owner or the CEO is a, is a former Navy SEAL who built this business and um, is actually now you know, uh, using drones in, in uh, this type of environment. So I wanted to highlight for you here that the tunnel systems, you know, in, in the initial, my initial thoughts that it was going to be very difficult to even use a drone in tunnel systems like that because of the depth. There's no uh, communications. There's no uh, RF. There's no uh, GPS available at those depths, you know, 100 feet or more. But when you go into autonomous mode and you pre-program the drones to, to sense um, itself in airspace, which is possible now with these platforms, then you can, you can do this um, reconnaissance into these tunnels, which I think we're gonna learn more as this conflict continues to um, evolve, but we're gonna learn more and more about how these platforms were used in tunnel warfare, which would have been nice for us in some of the conflicts we've had in the last two decades. Next slide. Uh, quickly, I'll go through some of these. I just, I've highlighted this before, but Ukraine's using 3D printed drones. Obviously, everything that can be imagined is happening in these conflicts. The, the image on the upper left is a actually a 3D printed drone um, with some ordnance next to it. Next slide. And then I've already I've already beat the drum on first person view. This is the game changer right now. Um, if you think about this from a, a tactical perspective, there is no armor crew. There is no infantry squad that is safe on the battlefield at this point based on this technology. And looking back to what I told you about the numbers of drones that are being used in this these categories, you know, 30,000 a month, 10,000 a month, whatever it may be. That is significant for the tactical fight, and we need to think about that um, as we as we develop the future force. Next slide. Uh, just real quick, I wanted to highlight some other robotics that are taking shape in in the conflicts. Obviously, there are surface vehicle uh, surface ro uh, robotics. There are underwater robotics. Uh, we're seeing ground robotics used, and these are all drones in, in essence. But the uh, the interesting one has been the surface attack vehicles. We saw this in the Black Sea. The Ukrainians have used these these platforms successfully against the Russian fleet. Um, so I think we, as we look at this holistically, this entire problem, we're really focusing on the aerial domain. But I think we ought to do some work and also in thinking about the terrestrial and the aquatic domain. And the aquatic is broken into two layers, obviously surface and under and under the surface. So again, just uh, so highlight some of the things that are happening here. I recently saw where a drone. Uh, it was actually launched from under this under the water, so it was basically positioned in a in a uh, stealth mode under, uh, let's say, a lake or it could even be a, a, a calm ocean, and then it was launched from that position. So there was no detection of that drone. It was actually launched from the actual water source itself. Think about that. So there's some creativity going on 
on how these uh, platforms are being employed. Next slide. Okay, the next couple of slides, I just want to give everyone a quick class on how you detect a drone and then how you mitigate it. And it's really, people make this complex, but it's actually very simple, but the mission itself is very complex. So doing something against a small UAS platform, for instance, these are drones, obviously in categories one or two that are 55 pounds or less, they fly at almost 70 kilometers per hour. They have payloads of up to 10 pounds. This is a very capable platform. But when you get into how do we detect these in airspace and then what do we do about it, there are really four ways to do it. And that's really what you need to remember out of this slide is that you can detect a drone using RF, which is radio frequency sensors. You can detect a drone using radar, optical, which is cameras, and acoustic, which are microphones. The best package is a layered sensor package. So by using just one of these sensors, you're not gonna really get a great picture of the airspace. But if you package these sensors in a layered system of RF, radar, and optical, I probably wouldn't use acoustic, but you know it's out there as an option. Those top three will give you a pretty good idea of what that drone is, where it's at, how fast it's traveling, all of those things you would need to know in order to make a decision. And so this is the, the four capabilities in detection. So keep that in mind as we move to the next slide, which is mitigation. Mitigation, there are four ways to mitigate a platform. You can, you can, put a project, you can shoot a projectile at it, which is kinetic. And that also includes lasers, uh, high-powered microwaves, those things that are starting to take shape in our ecosystems, especially in DoD. So kinetic, you can always do something kinetic. Jamming, that's the electronic warfare aspects of this. I mentioned early on, the Russians were doing a great job from an EW perspective. They had a lot of EW, sophisticated EW equipment. They were using it against the Ukrainians. Obviously, Ukrainians have changed tactics and are figuring out how, how to employ their drones. I've personally seen video of first-person view drones fight its way through an EW technology and still hit its target. That's where, and if, and if you if you actually come across a video where you see a first-person view drone in flight going towards its target and you start, start to see the screen is being scrambled, well, that means there's some sort of EW against it, but I've seen in some of these videos where the platform fights its way through it and still hits its target. That, again, is another TTP that's pretty concerning and we need to understand that. The third mitigation technique is obviously GPS disruption. And then the fourth is take control or take command. If the, if the platform is, is being flown via RF or even GPS, that signal can be overtaken and that drone can be landed somewhere or it can be returned to home. Something can take shape. But for our purposes, when we think about conflict, again, you know, modern wars, you wanna have a layered sensor package. So I talked about detection, RF, radar, and obviously optical cameras in a package to detect the drone and then to mitigate the drone, you wanna be able to either do that kinetically through jamming or through some sort of disruption in the signals. Take control to me is more of a, a technique that would be used by a private sector organization that wanted to try to limit collateral damage. That may be a consideration in conflict as well. We're not seeing that in Ukraine, um, uh, in the Ukraine conflict or the Israeli conflict, these, these, all these technologies, I think, are taking shape in packages. So we just talked about detection and mitigation. 
Those are really the best way I can simplify it for everyone watching so that you can understand clearly, you know, what you would need if you were in a position to decide to decide um, either a purchasing decision or an employment decision. You could go back to this this presentation and say, hey, I remember when uh, Colonel Edwards said, you know, detection really is involved with these technologies and mitigation has these. So how do I put that together? Next slide, please. Let's talk about um, some mitigation options, um, and I'm just going to go through simply five steps. These, this is what I've created for myself to simplify the problem. Um, but basically, the first thing you want to do is to conduct. I call you know you got to start with the ground game. So you got to conduct a drone vulnerability and risk assessment. So this is really the uh, IPB work, if you want to call it IPB or IPOE, the Intelligence Preparation of the Environment. Do that work up front. I call it the ground game. I've created a course um, that specifically shows uh, people how to develop a, a drone vulnerability and risk assessment. It's a framework that you just go step by step through it, and it really gives you that assessment or that report of what is your drone threat. So, like if you're in a conflict zone, you're going to want to do that for your FOB, right, or your Ford Operating Base, your Joint. Um, security station, your cob, whatever it may be. If you're in garrison, you're going to want to do that for garrison uh, bases, uh, installations, post, whatever it may be. And then, of course, in private sector, we need to do this for critical infrastructure and then the, all those events where our public gathers in mass, sporting events, concerts, parades, whatever it may be. The drone assessment is the ground game. It's first stage of the ground game. Then you want to do a technical reconnaissance or technical airspace reconnaissance. This is where you employ a detection capability to sort of understand pattern of life around your facility, your FOB, your garrison base, your outpost, your uh, unit's position, whatever it may be. So you're going to put up an RF sensor, a radar sensor, and an optical sensor, and you're going to and you're going to operate those sensors for you know a couple weeks, and you're going to you're going to obtain pattern analysis. This is really great for uh, a private sector entity or something in a garrison mode. In conflict, you're going to want to have those detection capabilities up all the time. You're going to want to know what decisions you need to make, but you're also going to have the ability to use mitigation technologies. In private sector, we can't do that, and I'll tell you why towards the end of this presentation. So the first step is the ground game. Do your drone assessment. The second is to employ a technology to see or create a pattern of analysis visualization for yourself. The third is exercise. Get your organization together, get your team together and conduct a tabletop exercise. You know, do the what ifs. If we have a drone, what do we do? Who responds? How do we respond? Work through all of those things. Have confidence, identify the problem, improve all the time. So really, this is the first stage of your of your training environment, of your exercise. All I, you know, I always used to like to get my teams around the table and do a tabletop, even when I was in battalion command, company command, you know, as the uh, as the uh, J2 for a TSOC, let's do this around the table. Let's get our all of our uh, actions as best we can in line and then understand who's going to do what and when. That's the really important part. A lot of times uh, that's missed. Uh, so the, the first part, let me just go back, drone assessment, Second part, technical reconnaissance of your airspace, then start exercising your staff. And then, of course, you build your, your planning and your training and your exercise programs around what you've learned. That's the, that's the fourth step. So you're, you're starting to develop how you're going to build the air domain into your security program. So a security program, normally we would think a physical security program is all about the ground. We know we have cyber implications now. We've been dealing with cyber for the last decade. 
and we're and we're doing great at that now and getting better every day. Now we have to build the air domain into our security programs. So if you think about this, the ground game has now added that other dimension of the air just based on the small UAS technology. So keep that in mind as you start to develop your plan and your plans and your training and your exercise program, but always go back and start with the tabletop first so you can get the team focused. Last is when you really, this is the last step of the mitigation options is when you're, you build your drone emergency response planning. So this is where you develop your plans. This is where you develop your SOPs, your operational um, activities, who the team is, how the team is organized. That I also built a course around this that gives you an 11 step framework that shows you how you know, basically where to start. Because a lot of questions I get now in the work that I do in private sector is, hey, hey, Bill, where do I start to build the air domain into my security program? So the, the DVRA course and this uh, DERP course, I call it, or Drone uh, Emergency Response Planning, are both frameworks that I developed. I published them back in 20, um, I think 2020, winter of 2020, with, uh, with an FBI publication. So these frameworks are meant to help you get started. And again, this helps you shape the environment so that you have something on the books. We all know, especially I do as a former tactical commander, that our, our plans don't survive the line of departure or they don't survive LD, we used to say. That's okay, but we should have a plan in place so that we can actually, the branches and sequels off that plan we can execute because that, that is what's going to happen. Real quick, I just wanted to bring up law and regulation in the United States currently because this affects garrison operations. It affects critical inf infrastructure. This does not pertain to conflict zones, so I don't want to confuse anyone, but we as a country are operating under a 2018 law. Keep that in mind, while the technology's maturity is at 2024. This has got to change. I currently lead the uh, Security Industry Association's Counter UAS Legislative Committee. I'm the chairperson, and I'm constantly lobbying with our legislators to get this law updated to 2024 with all the pertinent categories that need to take shape based on how the technology has evolved. This technology will continue to evolve. I didn't even talk, like I mentioned up front, but I didn't talk about AI, I didn't talk about autonomy that much, and I didn't talk about swarming. But that is the future. And when that happens in the conflict zone, we've got to be prepared in those mitigation, in those detection and mitigation categories on how we're going to protect our tactical formations. And then, of course, I'm sure some of you are thinking, there's no one on the battlefield that's safe. Your rear operations are not safe. Your um, anything to do. It is now anything to do with the conflict zone. There are no true lines uh, that separate that forward element from the uh, supply depot. So think in terms of that. Uh, and we've been thinking about this for many years, but now it's really a reality when you bring in these, these categories and groups of one, two, and three uh, platforms from a holistic perspective and combat operations. Just wanted to bring this up. I will mention at the bottom, the 118th Congress, which is our current Congress, the, this, there's a Senate bill called 1631. You might wanna dig into that, just Google it real quick. You can see some of the details in there. It's a it's a huge step forward, but it has not been approved. It still doesn't get us to where we need to be to protect our private sector mass gathering events. What I'm concerned about as a security consultant now is, you know, where we take our families and friends to public events. I showed you earlier uh, some of the events that are taking shape in the United States with people using these these platforms for nefarious intent. 
it, it can be a very bad day. Like I said on the EFP slide, it can be a very bad day if something nefarious happens at one of our mass gathering events. So we need to take that in consideration. Also, critical infrastructure is super important to protect. And then, of course, I'm a big believer of uh, protecting our DoD installations as well. Okay, uh, anything that I just talked about, the courses I mentioned, you can find them on this website, uh, Phoenix 6 Consulting. The courses are also offered on PSA University. Uh, it's a great source uh, for you if you're just looking for that place to get started. Um, I talked about the frameworks. Um, I think those are those are great foundational places to great foundational courses and great places to go to gather that information so that you can then train the trainer. And, you know, in my days in the military, we did a lot of train the trainer. We would send core uh, teams to get that training and then we'd come back to the units and train our uh, our entire formations that way. So I'd, I'd like to open it up. Uh, hopefully that wasn't, uh, you know, I, that was a, a quick run through of. Uh, or an update of what I did from the last time I was on the show. Hopefully it was informative and I'm here to answer questions. I think we have a little bit of time if any questions come in. Yes, sir. So I'm going to kick off the questions with, uh, so we talked about, you know, the proliferation of commercial off the shelf systems, uh, but you also brought up or showed a, a an image of the, the 3D printed parts as well. So, is there an increase or are you seeing an increase in purely like DIY uh, build at home type drones or is it still, you know, are we still looking at commercial off the shelf and then is that going to be the trend going forward as well? Yeah, the, the danger is the, is the hobbyist drone, right? The that's, that's really where the danger is. So I mentioned earlier that uh, DJI, which is a Chinese company, they command 80% of the market from a commercial perspective. Then you have others like Skydio and Autel and Unique, others trying to compete there. But it's really, when you talk about detection capabilities, most of the detection capabilities are really focused on DJI drones themselves, so 80%. So you're looking at 80% of the airspace, but it's at 20% that I think people should worry about. That's the hobbyist drone. That's the uh, drone that's printed on uh, a 3D printer. That's the drone that's really not detectable, and especially if it's programmed via waypoints or some sort of aut autonomy to fly to a certain location, then you don't really even have the ability to, to detect it unless you're using radar and optical solely to pick something up. Like, you know, there would be no signal at that point. So um, uh, I think I think that's a great question. But, yeah, it's um, it's something we should be really concerned about. I do normally talk about the hobbyist or the or the do it yourself uh, drones, but you know, in Ukraine, you're seeing people build these platforms and get them into the fight. In fact, the uh, Minister of Defense of Ukraine asked all of the citizens that owned a drone to get it into the conflict early on. It was it's actually a request to the citizenry. <laughs> so, yeah, I think my follow up question is that so you talked about you know the detection and mitigation systems. So we've got all these commercial off the shelf drones. Are there any commercial off the shelf systems that could be used for uh, detection or mitigation, or are we still talking like big things that probably aren't going to be affordable or uh, obtainable? No, there there are there are a myriad of companies out there that sell detection. So detection, you can technically sell detection in the private sector. It's called detection and monitoring. Um, in in a in a conflict zone, we would call DTI, you know, detect, track, interdict. You know, a little different. But in this case, there's no interdiction in private sector. But there's a there's a there's a um, myriad of companies that are actually selling these technologies. They sell RF uh, detection sensors, radar, 
and obviously cameras can can come from uh, uh, you know a lot of different companies. So these these systems are employed. Um, they are commercially available. There are companies out there that sell them. Um, I I think that the market is probably competitive in about four or five companies, but there are, there are hundreds out there that that claim they do this this type of work. But I think that's where you bring in. Uh, someone that has some expertise, someone that has some ability to understand the market to really help that um, that purchasing decision, really, so that you're not you're not buying something that may not work for you or whatever. And uh, but these these technologies are available. They are it's called in the private sector detection and monitoring. So I've got one more before I move to some of the questions in the chat. Uh, you had mentioned swarm and flock, and that there was a difference between the two. Could you just cover that real quick? It's really simple to understand. You know, I, I'm one of those people that, you know, I don't think uh, I like to take complex technologies and sort of simplify them uh, so we so I can understand them. But a swarm is a mass of drones centrally commanded and controlled. So it has a C2 node. A flock or a mass of drones, they aren't centrally commanded or controlled. So then that's the difference. What the dangerous part is, or the dangerous situation, is a swarm that's being centrally controlled for a specific mission. Mass drones in mass, obviously, they are dangerous as well, but they're they all they're all operating off different, uh, we would say, ground control stations or some sort of different platform. The swarm is what I think is going to become dangerous in conflict zones as that starts to mature. And by the way, I think there is only one known swarm event that's taken shape in conflict zones and it was actually executed by the Israelis. Yeah, it makes sense, you know, a flock being a flock of birds, they're all kind of sentient doing their own thing, but they might be in the same place at the same time. Whereas a, a swarm, you know, you think about, uh, you know, the Borg, somebody's controlling all those, those things all at the same time. So uh, we'll shift over. Albert's got the first question. Uh, he said, uh, creating the, the legal frameworks aside, uh, would the current difficulties with appropriation bills make DOD government-driven funding of counter UAS development and fielding a problem? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't. Um, I think that's always a problem when we're talking about budgets and we're talking about CRs and all the things that are happening in government. I think, though, that DOD is actually taking this um, technology seriously, from what I've seen as an outsider. Uh, and I know there's a joint office that's been established to actually um, find those technologies, test the technologies, and then hopefully hopefully we'll get those deployed and employed down to the lowest level of tactical operation as soon as possible. So I think uh, there's hope is what I'll say. I think there's a lot of good hope. Um, I just think that uh, what we're seeing from Ukraine, Russia, Israel, even Hamas in some instances, is that we really got to get our game on when it comes to how our tactical formations deploy and how um, we're going to not only protect them, but also equip them with the capabilities to exercise their own FPV missions, their own surveillance or ISR missions capabilities. It has to go all the way down. I, you know, I've, I've uh, commanded at all levels and, you know, this is this is clearly affecting that in my opinion, that infantry squad on some part of the battlefield has to have this uh, technology and capability. 
Yeah, and as a glass glass half empty kind of guy, I'll also say like we're all at the mercy of the palm cycle. So, you know, we're always going to be just a little bit behind probably. Um, the next question comes from Matt Bailey. He says, uh, in the current conflicts, have you seen any documentations or TTPs about the how the forces are integrating small UAS and counter UAS capabilities into their C2 and fires planning and execution? Yeah, you know, I really, I, yeah, that's, a, that's a really great question. Um, thanks. I haven't. Um, I, what I'm seeing is uh, bits and pieces of how these, um, these attacks, how this technology is being employed really from a from a what i've seen from a ukrainian and russian perspective is that is that frontline uh organization they've actually created units that are fpv units uh isr units using these group one two and three more mostly one and two uh category drones and so what we've seen is the organizations have um agilely formed based on the conflict, and I'm talking about specifically what we've seen in Ukraine and Russia, to create organizations that specifically make this a mission set. So um, think I would think in terms of uh, probably that company to battalion level echelon, whereas some of this equipment is actually getting pushed down to that, that squad, right? And the uh, photo that I showed early in the presentation of the Ukrainian soldier in the trench line, that is actually a video you can find on YouTube. He flies that drone in FPV from his squad level into a door of a building about two kilometers away where Russians are having lunch, smoke break, whatever it is, and blows that drone up inside that building. So that is the level of tactical uh, changes we're seeing where from a two kilometer position, he can fly that ordinance directly into that building right through the door and execute the target. Yeah, and I, I think my follow-up question, you, you went through the the mitigations, risk mitigation steps, you know, kind of a caveat, not a caveat, but dovetail off this question would be, you know, what do you think in terms of your risk mitigation steps, what are the Russians and the Ukrainians and Israelis not doing that they should probably be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a, uh, in my opinion, there's a gap in what I call, I, I mentioned it a couple of times, the ground game. But I think you have to get your ground game in order before you go right to technology. And I advise all my clients that I work with, you know, don't go buy the camera system first. Actually do the do the analysis, do the assessment on why you might need that camera system, um, where that camera system might be placed. It's no different with small UAS. You know, do the ground game. If you're a, you know, like if you're a FOB, let's say, or FOB commander, um, and you and you're going directly, hey, I'm gonna employ these technologies. But you don't know why you're employing that technology. You don't know. You don't have a purpose for it. You don't understand what the enemy's doing. Uh, you haven't done your your uh, intelligence preparation of the environment. All of those types of things. That's the DVRA, right? That's the ground game. Then you saw in the second step where you actually go. It's a it's a methodical approach that I laid out for everyone here. Was you actually go to that next step where you do bring the technology in to help you with pattern analysis? How do you how do you develop really what's happening around your AOR? And then of course you go through the follow on three steps to to sort of create that entire security environment around your operation. You know, the, the, uh, the mistake that I see a lot of folks make is they go right to buying technology, employing technology, but then not understanding, you know, in, in, and we all know this, the enemy is not a potted plant in combat. We know the enemy is a thinking enemy. Um, you know, what the Ukrainians found out quickly was that the EW mechanisms of the Russians was very, very good. 
Um, and so it's taken them a while now to develop this. It's that cat and mouse game, right, of, uh, of uh, combat. So no different than going back to my point, develop your ground game first, then get into technology, and then move it into planning, training, rehearsing, exercising. In combat operations, even on a FOB, as a commander, I always did exercises on the FOB, even while we were in combat, just so we stayed fresh. We knew exactly what our responses were. You got to do that in this environment as well. Sure. So the next question comes from uh, you had it. Yes, uh, regarding drones being used in tunnel warfare, are the drones themselves capable of being operated underground on their own, or are they being used as part of the network? Yeah, the, the what I've seen, and I'm no, I don't want to say I'm an expert in this because I'm starting. I'm I'm actually trying to garner the TTPs because it's actually there hasn't been too much information coming out of that conflict yet. We're going to see it; it'll eventually come out. But um, really, it's about autonomous. It's about uh, uh, drones that actually have sensors built on them so that they can they can navigate uh, uh, the platform itself can navigate itself in tight spaces. It can make its own turns. It can determine when to do that. All the while, it has a it has a payload on it, a camera payload. Uh, in some instances, you can arm these if you needed to. Uh, but right now, I think what they're being used for is reconnaissance, um, doing that initial inspection into into these tunnel networks before you put a human being in, which is a good idea. Um, you know, a lot of so I think we're really starting to see uh, one of the acronyms I saw recently was called SLAM, um, which is is and I can't remember off the top of my head what it actually stands for, but it's actually how the drone go, can go into a tunnel and then navigate its way through that tunnel and then, of course, come back out on the other end if it's not disrupted. Future Kiwi here. SLAM is simultaneous localization and mapping. Uh, so, but when you think about when I first thought about this problem, as the Israelis were going into Gaza, I didn't think drones were going to play a very key role in the tunnels, but we're starting to see how that creativity and innovation is actually changing that. And uh, we are seeing that. Yeah, and yesterday I actually saw a video of a drone being used to inspect sewer tunnels, and they had actually enclosed the propellers uh, so that if they touched anything, they wouldn't get disrupted. It looked a lot like a, a bunch of, you know, the the tail fin on a on a HH65 Dauphine, you know, how it has an enclosed tail rotor. That's what it looked like on all, all sets of those. So it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, this technology was was developed for mining operations. It was developed for inspections. Uh, you know, again, I didn't even touch on that in this presentation, but this commercial technology was really designed for two things, recreation up front. If you're going to buy a drone, you want to have fun with it. It's like, uh, and then the second was for uh, business purposes or for practical purposes. What we're seeing now is that technology is being taken into conflicts and obviously used in different ways. So our next question comes from uh, Albert and says, what's your take on whether the pervasiveness of first person view and other SUAS use would be as common in a conflict where the, the belligerents are able to reliably detect and quickly target drone operator facility, uh, facilities? And I actually wrote down uh, while you were talking, air superiority, air supremacy doesn't matter uh, with drones these size. Yeah, what a great question. Um, I was just actually thinking about this uh, on the treadmill this morning, so uh, this is good. Um, what I, what I think you're talking about is what I would call PTL prior to launch. You know, like how are we how are we getting into that intelligence cycle so that we can actually do something before the platforms are even launched? And and this is a great I, I think from a tactical perspective at the infantry squad level or 
company or a platoon or company, very difficult to do in conflict, would, would be very complex or difficult to do. But if you start thinking about like the warehouses and the storage areas and some of the other places where, you know, this equipment is starting to come in, then you're starting to think about prior to launch um, and this PTL idea. And, uh, and a friend of mine actually gave me that acronym. That's not something I coined, but I thought it was really good. And uh, so stay tuned because I'm getting ready to write an article on this exact uh, topic. Uh, but this is where, again, go back to what I mentioned about the ground game. I mean, this should be where in that drone vulnerability risk assessment and um, planning that, that ground game phase, we start doing really good IPB, IPOE. You start talking about what is the priority law? You know, how do we get ahead of this? I think in when I was a commander in Iraq, we used to say left a boom, um, and and it's no different here. So great question. Um, if you have some ideas, you know, obviously send them my way because I'll, I'll happily uh, try to put all this together and and get some information out. Uh, because what I'm trying to do, as you probably all realize, I'm trying to educate people on on this technology and like where it's headed. So. Um, that's what I think is super important right now. Once we do that and we get our, our young service members and they understand this like nobody's business, we're going to be really good at it. We're going to be really good at it, just like we have been in the past with other things. Yes, sir. Uh, so Albert had a follow-up question in a, in a similar vein. He, said, he asked, uh, what's your take on why uh, Hamas drone use has had significantly less impact on Israeli ability to take and secure ground in Gaza as compared to, say, the Ukrainians or the Russians in that conflict? Yeah, it's all based on tunnel. It's all based on the tunnels, I think. I think it's based on the uh, how, they're, how, how Hamas has had to fight. What, you know, what's, what, are, what are they fighting from? What are, you know, the Israelis are on the offensive. Um, the Israelis are, are using drones 100%, I would think. I don't, have, you know, I don't have any inside information, but that you would think that that entire environment is, is flooded with that category four and five platforms maybe or group four and five platforms as the overhead and then of course i just mentioned we talked a little bit about tunnel stuff but you know if you're trying to employ or deploy a drone from a tunnel network i think that's almost impossible i mean you would have to expose yourself you would have to be out in the open you know all those things cover and concealment then go away right unless you're unless you're using something some building some remnants of a building whatever it may be but then the minute that drone is in the air, it's detectable. But what's also detectable if you're flying via RF or even GPS is your location. So if you remember the days of geolocating, uh, let's say a mortar, a mortar uh, fire, like what we did in uh, you know Iraq and Afghanistan, you can do counter fire, right? Because you can identify location. In a drone operation, the geolocation of an operator, even in private sector, with drone detection and monitoring capabilities is completely doable. And so, you know, I think the danger there is from, from their perspective is they expose themselves at that point. Um, and it's probably not their, um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not in their minds, but I, it's probably not the way they're trying to, to defend themselves or, or fight this fight. Yeah, and I was thinking about the questions too, as well while you were talking. I think the other element to that as well is that uh, Hamas and, you know, Russia or Hamas and Ukraine are not uh, a synonymous force. They're not the same type of opponent. Whereas, you know, you could probably compare the Israeli forces to either Russia or Ukrainian in terms of, you know, it is a conventional fighting force 
whereas Hamas is not necessarily a conventional fighting force. So the conflict is different uh, as well. So, you know, the, yeah. the Air, the Air Force you. problem of I, I can't hold ground with an F-16, you know, it's the same problem with the UAS. I, I can't hold ground with the UAS. I still need boots on the deck. Yeah, again, this is a great, uh, I just finished uh, teaching a course actually today, um, and we talked about this in the course, but it's that whole mindset change of COIN to MCO, which is major combat operations. So, you know, we just spent over two decades in COIN. We're now transitioning all of our services back to this MCO mindset. And believe me, it is not, it is not easy. And in 2003, when the army went into Iraq, we, I, I think that you can, you could probably Google this, but I think we ended that conflict in about 17 days because we could move, shoot, and communicate. And we were well-trained at doing that. Then you go into a few decades of coin, which is a completely different fight. And now we're transitioning back to major combat operations, which they call MCO. You might hear the term MDO, multi-domain operations, and you might also hear the term all domain operations, which is really a joint term. But you start thinking about that. That's the, ba the basic tenets are move, shoot, communicate. And then how do you coordinate? And so uh, that's just an old school soldier talking from this foxhole. But I think that's where we're headed. And uh, and I'm in communication with um, officers now in the force that are actually having to train their formations to do this. So I'm, I'm trying to stay relevant. Sir, so we're at the uh, couple minutes left. So I'm going to kick it over to you just for uh, any closing comments. Uh, and then I'll close out the episode. No, thank you for your attention. Uh, I see some friends on the call. I appreciate you joining. Hopefully, uh, and give me some feedback if you'd like on, on uh, what was presented. I think really what I'm trying to do here is simply educate, uh, build those foundations, get people more comfortable with the technology. They shouldn't be afraid of it. You take the complex, you make it simple, especially if you're a leader. That's what, you're, that's what, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to kind of take those complex ideas and simplify them so that we can execute the mission. Uh, so I appreciate being on the show again. This is always a great venue. Uh, it's, it's always well done. And, uh, and, and thank you for your time. Sir, yeah, th thanks uh, so much for your, your time and your insight. Uh, thanks to all those folks who showed up uh, and joined the tech chat today with your uh, good, excellent questions. Uh, so that's all we have for today's episode. So go ahead and carry out the plan of the day. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Krulak community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.